In response to feeling rejected by my school, I rejected the world around me. I gave up on learning, having a peaceful family life, or feeling like I would ever belong in my own country. My moral compass was skewed by antisocial influences. I identified with the young men my country pointed fingers at. The gangsters, criminals, bad guys, and outlaws. They were rejects, like me. We were part of the same tribe. Seeing my friend Lucas's name in a local Crime Stoppers press release was the first time I remember being conscious of how far I had strayed from mainstream values. It was 2007. I was 19 years old and Lucas was a few years older. The press release asked for witnesses and potential victims to come forward. The way Lucas was described was jarring. I remember words like violent and dangerous. And I remember feeling concerned that my friend was being presented to the world as an animal. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis, and today we're looking at the crisis of young men. In recent times, you might have felt like the world is in a crisis of violence. It feels like every news cycle, there's a new incident of a shooting, an assault, a murder. Whether it's a single victim or violence on a mass scale, there's usually a common denominator. More often than not, the perpetrator is an angry young man. A man conditioned to believe violence is the answer to whatever problem he faces. And it's this conditioning that affects men of every race, colour and cultural background. So you might be wondering, why young men? Canadian activist and social worker Jamil Giovanni has written a book that attempts to answer this question and much more. It tries to get to the heart of what drives young men to violence and what we can do to steer them off this path. He joins us today. Thanks for having me. How are you finding Australia so far? So far, so good. A bit rainy, but, indeed, uh, yes. but everybody's been uh, very welcoming, so I appreciate it. Weather's quite a bit different from Toronto, I can imagine. Yeah, well, right now it's summer in Toronto, but summers are short and winters are long <laughs> in Canada. So yeah, I pre- even though at least the rain's not as bad as the snow, so I'm grateful for that. That's definitely true. So we'll uh, jump into the book. Uh, so Why Young Men is your first published book, but you've previously written for Huffington Post and contributed to an anthology as well. I was wondering what the process of writing the book was like as your first foray into published work yeah i think the the unique value of a book as a medium to communicate to people is something that i didn't fully appreciate at the beginning of the process Mm. so i started doing the research thinking it was going to be an academic article something that probably 25 people (laughs) would read and you know wouldn't wouldn't um have much of a of an audience but over the process of doing the research, I started to say, well, maybe we could turn this into something that a, that a bigger audience might hmm. uh, access. And I thought, well, we a magazine article or maybe we do a series of op-eds or something like that. And then I, I started to realize that the shorter formats and also the more commercial formats sometimes make it harder to add the nuance to what you're trying to communicate. Mm. And I think that's where I started to appreciate the book as a way to tell the story in the best way I could. So I decided on the book as as the ideal format for that reason, in terms of the length and the time I could spend mm. and just really telling the stories I wanted to in a way I thought did justice to the the communities and the people involved. So that was where, how I settled on the book. And the process of getting the research and the writing together was 
was difficult. I think the first year of working on the book um, felt like I wasn't getting sort of through a brick wall. Like it was, mm. it was, it was a lot of resistance. It felt like I was getting things down on paper, but I wasn't comfortable with them. And I wasn't comfortable with how other people might read it. Cause you know, you, you, you try your best to communicate, but you're putting something in the audience's hands at the end of the day. Yeah. And that was producing quite a bit of anxiety. And then I had a bit of a breakthrough after a year where I started to get more comfortable with the ideas. And a big part of that was figuring out how was I going to format things? What, how would I divide the writing into different chapters? What's the, the best way to sort of build the narrative from beginning to end? Once I got comfortable with those things, it made it a lot easier to put the book together. So once you made the leap from an academic journal article to an actual book, was that when you decided to incorporate the more memoir aspects into the book? Because a large part of it is your personal experience. Absolutely, yeah. So that was a, um, a decision I made for a couple of reasons. One is that when we got into the book, I realized if I wanted to reach a broader audience, being able to put myself in the narrative was going to be helpful hmm. for that reason. And also that I started to feel a little bit of tension around am I being equally as vulnerable with the reader as I've asked the young men I interview and profile in the book to be? Mm. And it started to feel uncomfortable when I was writing about someone. I was like, well, maybe people would take this young man's story who wound up in jail or, or was recruited by extremists and say, well, that guy's a terrible person. Yeah. But if I put myself in it and I say, well, I related to some of those things. I related to those feelings. Mm. I also dealt with that confusion and yeah. that lack of moral clarity then it might make it easier for the audience to have some empathy for that young man I'm writing about. And and that's where I started to work in the more memoirish elements of the book. Absolutely, yeah. I think that that feeling of that could have been me is something that me as the reader, and I'm sure countless other men reading the book would have felt that. Yeah, I hope so. That was the, that was the goal. It's always weird when you sort of have to draw the line between like, well, how much of this book is about you and yeah. how much of it is about sort of making a bigger point, right? Because... You know, there are a lot of things in my life that aren't in the book because I didn't think that they were relevant to the broader yeah. story. Um, and, and that was a difficult thing to wrestle with, right? Because you don't want to overindulge the sort of memoir element where you're like telling mm. people about something in your life that no one cares about, right? But at the same time, you want to give enough of your personal life that people connect the dots as you're describing where they're saying, oh, that could have been Jamil and look at where his life wound up. So maybe we need to give these other young men a chance for redemption as well. Yeah. Did you find revisiting those, I guess, darker parts of your your teenage years difficult was it difficult going back to that headspace it was very difficult especially the stuff related to my family and my father was mm. really hard because i had sort of compartmentalized my my father out of my life yeah and you know it's been over 10 years since i talked to him so it uh was difficult to sort of rethink about that and then also figure out like what elements of it am I even capable of, of sharing, right? Because they're painful memories in some of them and they're things that I've like purposely repressed. And there are also things that implicate other people that I care about, like my mother, my sisters, my friends growing up. When you're telling your life, you're also telling these other folks' lives at the same time. And there's a great deal of responsibility that comes with. So that was also really tough to be like, so do, do I want to talk about my mom this way? Do yeah. I want to talk about her relationship with my father? And what, how is that going to make her feel, right? So that was definitely difficult. And then the other elements of like the parts of the periods of my life where I was convinced that I was stupid and illiterate and um, where I was angry and, and tempted by crime. Like those are hard parts to sort of return to because there's a lot of... Um, I think sort of trauma that you go through when you sort of think about like 
your the the past periods of your life and you're like okay well um did i actually work through that trauma or yeah. did i just sort of forget about or it or is right? that thinking of you didn't realize it was that bad at the time but then looking back on it as an adult you're like oh wow i went through that i did that yeah and it, probably the, the 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 most difficult thing was also trying to get a grasp on just how fast my life was changing as a young yeah. person because as an adult now you know i'm 31 and time just feels a lot uh shorter mm. right like uh, six months passes now and i'm just like i didn't even know yeah. it's, it's not february anymore you know what i mean but um as a kid it's like a year felt so long and so your life is changing in a way that's hard to always connect with and you're looking back mm. and that was um that was challenging but i i tried my best to, to sort of put myself back in that place so as a youth growing up in toronto you mentioned in the book that you're influenced by rappers and gangster movies with your work um, helping youth today, have you noticed any parallels with how they're, I guess, being influenced, how they seek escapism? Yeah, well, I do think popular culture still has a different relationship with some young people compared to others, similar to what it was like when I was growing up, where you have some young people who grow up looking at rappers and entertainers and musicians for what they are, which yeah. is they're entertainers and performers yeah. and, and artists and people who shed light on important parts of life but they're certainly not people that we would recommend young people to look to for moral guidance and wisdom yeah. and yet we still have lots of young people who grow up looking to entertainers for that right who see them as philosophers and clerics and almost like you're you're turning to your phone and listening to music or watching youtube for the for the sake of getting inspiration for how to live your life and that's a really unhealthy dynamic i think so that's where i was when i was growing up and i still encounter many young men who are in that same place and what i try as best as i can to do is not to say oh these rappers are bad guys like don't listen to rap or like don't listen to music because i know that wouldn't have gotten through to me when i was a kid yeah. so what i in instead try to do is just say well is he asking to play this role in your life, right? Like when he signed his record deal, did he think he was going to be a father figure to you or did he think he was going to make money and make music? Yeah. And I think that's a more helpful way to hopefully get across to young men that some of the people you're, we're looking up to as role models, they're not prepared to be role models. They're also young men who are struggling with their own set of issues, mm -hmm. right? And I think one of the most powerful parts of the book for me was when you were describing being a teenager and you were on the verge of buying a gun and that was sort of the precipice of you entering this life of crime that you wouldn't be able to come back from. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself at that age, at that time, what would you say? I think the most important thing I could have said to myself back then is just to remember that the way life is at that point is not how it always is going to be. And I think when you're young, it's hard to remember that. Like you, you, you're so caught up in the moment that you're you're willing to to potentially make decisions that will ruin the rest of your life, be based on how you feel on a whim in some cases, right? And um, I think that was some of the perspective I lacked when I was a kid was just realizing, well, life is long, and just because like you're not happy with your home life or you don't like your school or you have friends that aren't encouraging the best parts of you doesn't mean that it's always gonna be that way. And for me, that transition happened super fast. Like as soon as I got out of the high school environment and I went into a community college, my life changed abruptly. Yeah. But I didn't know that that was gonna happen. I didn't know that just a few weeks down the road, things could be completely different. And that's the most valuable thing I think that young people can learn is just not to, 
not to react to your present circumstances in a way that's going to determine what your future could be. And in the process of researching for the book, did you reconnect with people from high school or your community college that you had been friends with at the time? Do you, did you know what they're doing now with their lives? I did, yeah. So I did reach out to some people in my the neighborhood I grew up in, which is in the suburbs of Toronto, mm-hmm. to get their take on what our life was like together, just just so that it, it, I, I sort of knew, was I the only one who sort of saw these things yeah. or did they? And um, it was fascinating to reconnect with them and see that some of them had been able to sort of put their life together um, and, and others uh, were sort of still sort of lost um, some of them I reconnected with. It was like speaking to them when they were teenagers. They just hadn't grown up yeah. at all since then. And that was sad. Um, then also when I, from community college, I reconnected with some of my friends that I met through the Nation of Islam, hmm. which was also very interesting because, you know, the chapters I write about the Nation of Islam and about sort of black nationalism hmm. as a as an idea that I had flirted with when I was growing up, it were hard because I wanted to make sure that even though I knew my friends from that period of my life wouldn't agree with everything I said, it was important to me that they felt that they were presented in a fair way. Yeah. And so I went back to them and I, you know, showed them an early draft of the book and talked with them about it. And I think they, it, it, it was received the way I hoped, which is we don't agree with you, Jamil, but like you, you didn't misrepresent us. Yeah. And that, that was fair. And, and so that was important to me. And some of them had sort of have left that worldview since then, which is really good. And others haven't. And unfortunately, some of the ones who haven't, I would say their growth has been really stunted. And that's probably the, the theme in sort of returning back to people who I grew up with at various stages in my life is just seeing who has been able to grow as well and who hasn't. Because a lot of us didn't grow at all. Like it, it was kind of amazing 20 years later to see that a lot of us are in the same spot we were in when we were 12 years yeah. old. So has the Nation of Islam changed at all? Because I found that passage of uh, of the book where you're exploring that group as sort of an outlet for your identity, I guess. Um, has it changed at all? Well, the Nation of Islam is still led by the same man, Louis Farrakhan, right. who led it when I was a kid. So it hasn't changed very much. He's still preaching the exact same things. Yeah. I think he, the... the in some ways, the fact that it hasn't changed is part of its lasting appeal, I believe, because it is a way for young people who are frustrated by the status quo of race relations and inequality to almost return back to this like past era where a different kind of politics was more mainstream and more relevant. Yeah. Um, so if you grow up you know, idolizing Malcolm X, where you can sort of walk back in his shoes because he and Muhammad Ali and some of these other great sort of mythic characters in black American history, um, you can join the group that they were once part of. And so the Nation of Islam benefits, I think, from from being very slow to change. And I think on on some of the key things I write about, they haven't changed one bit. Mm. And jumping ahead in the book a bit, your first international assignment, for lack of a better word, was in Brussels, following the Paris attacks, looking at the Muslim youth in the area who had been tarred with the same brush as the Paris attackers. I was wondering what effect that had on you as your first international look at young men. Well, I went to Brussels with a certain degree of vulnerability in the sense that it's possible I could have gone there and I would have said, I can't relate to these guys at all. Yeah. I don't understand them. I don't understand where they come from. And it, that would have been pretty depressing, quite honestly, because I, I went to Brussels with a certain optimism that people across cultures can understand each other, especially when we're trying to relate to core emotions like rage and anger and frustration. Yeah. So 
it, it, it was a very positive experience to go and then say, oh, so these guys are not that different from the people I grew up with. And that even though they might pray to a different God or their parents might come from a different country, yeah. there's some sort of common ground between us. And it's the same way I felt when I was looking into the, you know, white nationalist um, extremists as well. It's like I wanted to be like, okay, just because this white dude had a different life than me, I think we there's something that we can sort of relate to on. And uh, so that was probably the biggest impact it had on me was just it, it proved a, a hypothesis that was really important to me mm. because I... I'm very concerned about the way race works in our politics. I think it makes it harder for people to understand each other. And if I went on that international trip and 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 didn't disprove that, I think it would have been tough for me to deal with. Absolutely. And I think one of the things uh, about the Brussels portion of the book that I found fascinating was how they felt, the Muslim youth, how they felt being vilified by the media. Because that's something that the Australian media does a lot as well. And I was wondering what you thought about how how much the media's portrayal of um, identity, I guess, can can perhaps lead young men to violence. So, like, they're living up to what they're being portrayed as. It's like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy or something. Yeah, I do think that, you know, we, we are to some extent a product of what we're encouraged to be. Mm. And when we have adults in our lives who tell us that we're good people, we have high expectations of you, we expect you to do well in school and work hard and be a good citizen and contribute to your family and your community, that means something to young people. So news media often betrays that that positive messaging because yeah. they represent pretty one-dimensional um, you know, images of a lot of communities. And I think... E- the, the, the thing that I struggle with with the media is that they, you know, I understand given, you know, the work that we do. I mean, you're running a podcast, so you're yeah. in media too. So, you know, I understand the difficulty of trying to, to boil down a complex situation and present it in eight minutes in a cable news or on radio or something. But I think there's a responsibility that a lot of traditional media has not taken mm. to say, well, you know, we have a sort of a public service element to what we do that's bigger than just profit. And I wish more of them understood that, right, that you're actually shaping the way someone sees themselves and sees their society. Mm. And uh, that's a pretty serious responsibility that that I think more traditional sort of legacy media outlets should take seriously. And nowadays, do you think there's a similar risk with um, you put it in the book as with uh, white lash, where it's like uh, white supremacists being uh, sort of targeted in the media following like the attacks in America and stuff like that? Do you think there's an issue with the white population kind of being feeling vilified by the media as well yeah and that's one of the things i try to show in the book is that the like people react to being stereotyped pretty similarly like i know that you know it it, it's hard for a lot of folks to treat everyone the same right and say well if you're rich you should have less reason to be upset or if you're white you should have less reason to be upset yeah but the reality is that like if you're stereotyped, whether you're rich or you're white or you're a Muslim or you're black, whatever it is, you people don't like it. It's a, it's not a thing that I think human beings enjoy is being told, well, because you're part of this group, that means you think or feel or behave a certain way. Yeah. And uh, so that is the the common feeling I think you see when with Muslim youth or even with white youth who are frustrated by things like their conservative politics being presented as if it's a, a white nationalist project. Yeah. And then they're saying, well, this media is misrepresenting me in the same way the Muslim youth are saying this media is misrepresenting me. And it does create more than anything. It undermines sort of 
the the need the like the the sort of institutions we should be relying on to deliver sort of objective information to the public, right? So if I'm a young man, whether I'm white Muslim or whatever the case, and I think that the news media has it out for people like me, then I'm now turning to the internet and conspiracy theories and unverifiable sources yeah. for how to tell the story of what's happening in the world. And that's where propaganda and division and hate easily seep in to our minds is when we don't have that quality control of, well, who am I listening to and where am I getting yeah. my facts from? And so most of our discussion and the uh, discussion in the book as well focuses on, at least in terms of political violence, um, that of the right and conservative um, parties, I guess. Do you think there's a similar problem of violence or indoctrination facing the left as well? Yeah, so I think it's been less of an issue over the last few decades, but it does pop up. And in the United States right now with Antifa, that's sort of becoming the narrative is that it is the left-wing um, corollary to what's been happening on the right. And I think that it does follow a similar step of presenting violence as a normal response mm. to what you see as an injustice in the world. And that is what ISIS does really well. That's what uh, a lot of criminal groups do really well. That's also what right-wing violence does well. So I think that recognizing when that's happening, when we're like, oh, there's a group out here that's trying to convince our young people that it's okay to be violent if you think something is wrong, mm. that is a core message we need to be attacking, right? And I think when that pops up on the left or the right, we need to be very careful. Yeah, and you mentioned with regards to um, the Black Lives Matter movement as well, you said, um, and I quote, Black Lives Matter's growing influence changed the environment all civil rights activists work in. People wanted to fight, not listen to each other. Do you think this more, I guess, radical and outspoken type of political activism has created a larger divide between the left and the right that is in turn fueling more violence? I do think that when we use identity in our political activism, it becomes so much harder to compromise and work across divisions because I, our identity is to some extent static and fixed. Yeah. So if I'm sort of taking my political positions and saying, well, this is now tied to my race, my gender, my sexuality, how do I compromise with someone else? Because now I'm tying my politics to the things that aren't changing about me. Yeah. Whereas I think that that, the goal should be to, of course, stand for what you believe in, but also to recognize that in a democratic society, we have to be able to work together. And if we're not able to work together because we're too busy fighting over identity issues, then I think that's going to be a real problem. Mm. Like on a practical level, I think the goal needs to be how do we how do we make the world better? And are we being resistant to what are clear lessons for how to work together because we want to be ideologues? And that's the mistake that gets made, I think, with a lot of activism on the left right now mm. is that it's become almost like a religion or something in and of itself, that there is a series of principles and political ideas that you have to hold on to and when people depart from them somehow they are heretics that need mm. to be called out and fought with that's the mistake black lives matter makes i think with the issue of white supremacy it's grown considerably since the time you were writing the book which i think was a, just after the election of donald trump and the sort of um uproar that happened after that um since the issue is kind of been in the media and the spotlight considerably more um is there anything you would have added or you would have liked to add to the book yeah, if I had more time, I would have done more research into white supremacist violence, also into Antifa. Mm. And um, 
I, I think that there's a there are some things that have happened just within the last 12 months alone that yeah. would would add some nuance there. But my ability to, to, to speak on these issues, I think, stems to some extent from the attempt to take what was happening with a group like ISIS and try to extract as much as possible some sort of universality to it, right? Mm-hmm. To say, if you find a disenfranchised, angry young man, what are the kinds of things that you can tell him that might make him animated and inspired enough to become a violent actor? Yeah. And that's very similar, I think, to what's happened with the white supremacist um, violence or with Antifa. And my hope is that people would sort of read the, and, and not limit what we could learn about a group like ISIS to just, oh, these are this is a story about Muslims or this is a story about black people, this is a story about immigrants, yeah. but rather like, well, I think the last year has proven that white men are equally susceptible to all of these same things. Absolutely, yeah. And, um, and, and I hope that's sort of the takeaway from something like this is mm-hmm. that if I tell you a story about one community, we might be open-minded enough to learn how that applies to other communities as mm-hmm. well. So say there's a parent listening to this who is worried that their teenage child is possibly getting indoctrinated into violence. What would you say to them to, what could they say to their child to kind of get on the same level? Well, one of the most important things for parents to do is make sure that there is not an invisible wall between sort of what you might call real life or or the conversations we have in the flesh when we look each other in the eye mm. and the conversations a young man might be having on his phone or on his on his tablet or on his computer because too many parents don't have any clue what their child is doing online. Yeah. And even when your child's a teenager and I mean, I was, I know what it's like when you're a teenager and you don't want to talk to your parents and you're not, you know, and you're, you're putting up these barriers, but I think it's incumbent on parents to be very familiar with what's happening on the internet, understand the kind of things that your, your child might be reading. Even if he's not willing to share it with you, it's important for you to be reading what's happening online so that you can initiate those kinds Kinds of conversations because digital literacy on behalf of parents and youth are incredibly important. So that would be one thing. The other thing I would say is the more you can put a young person in new situations, the more you can ask that person to change how they think. A big part of what worked well in my life is that I had all these like really abrupt transitions and that made it harder for negativity to hold on to me because I was around a new peer group and I met new potential mentors and I learned new activities and I just put my mind in different places and that was a consistent opportunity for a reset in what I was thinking and believing at that time. If I were a parent and I was concerned about uh, my son, I would say, okay, how do I sort of disrupt what's happening in his life? Like just enough that it might be a reset button on how he's thinking. And you'd be amazed by how how a small change of just like who you're talking to or who you're spending your free time with or who you're playing, you know, uh, you know, soccer or basketball with, like can be an amazing adjustment in how you perceive the world. Hmm. And in terms of, I guess, warning signs, what are some signs that a teenage male might be getting into some kind of dangerous territory. Yeah, I I cite the Center for the Prevention of Radicalization Leading to Violence, which is an organization based in Montreal, Canada. I cite them in the book because they've done tremendous work on helping people identify those signs. Mm. So um, I would definitely suggest people look at their resources and Google them. The main thing that they suggest people do is really understand the um, how a young person might be isolating himself from people around him. So he's not talking to his friends. He's not seeking 
counsel from his parents or his teachers. That sort of isolation is important to notice. Mm. And then on top of that is also things like the inclusion of sort of political language or divisive language in understanding the world. When they start to make references of, well, this group of people is causing this problem, or I'm feeling this way because some group of people have uh, have have have. Uh, made it harder for me to have a job or be happy or they're taking my country or mm. they're um, they're discriminating against me. Um, certainly those things might actually be true, but the more divisive a young person's language becomes, the more it's an indicator that they're starting to develop an ideology that can very easily turn into hate. And that can be directed to uh, an ethnic group, a religious group. It could be directed toward women. It could be directed toward another neighborhood uh, in terms of gang rivalries. But that, that mentality is important to, to keep an mm. eye on too. Absolutely. And so with your first book, Done and Dusted, what's next for your activism? That is a great question. I am still sort of working that out, I suppose, but I, I, I think there are a couple of things I've been thinking about. One is I want to be more involved in sort of faith networks. I think that there is an opportunity to reach a lot of young people um, through churches and mosques and synagogues mm. and temples that I would like to better understand and explore. Um, so those networks are important for me, I think. And I I've been spending a lot of time with communities, faith communities, um, since the book came out and I want to continue doing that. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I've been thinking a lot about is how do we, um, use technology better? Like in all the touring I do, I meet young men where it's like, I wish I could be his mentor. Like I wish <laughs> yeah. I could check in on him and come to his school, you know, every few weeks and just sort of have some connection. And I've been thinking, well, you know, I can't do that uh, with everyone. Maybe there's a way to use technology to connect with people in a better way. And social media is one way. I mean, I try to be active on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram as much as I can. But I've been wondering, like, you know, if I started, let's say, a Google Hangout where every Wednesday at 8 p.m., I made myself available, would that be a way to sort of give mm. young men who are looking for advice or someone to talk to access to me? So that's another thing I've been playing around with and, and I'm hoping that I'll get some clarity on how I could better use technology because we're so interconnected and I yeah. feel like there's there's potential to do better with that interconnectivity. Especially to counter all the negative influences that young men especially can find on the internet with all the, you know, the bad forums and whatnot. It'd be very good to counter that with a very positive influence. They still have that technology connection, but it's something positive. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. So hopefully I'll figure that out too. Yeah. Those are, those are two of the things I've been thinking about. And dialing back on uh, youth connecting with their faith communities as well. Um, it seems like there's a bit of a disconnection between youth and faith these days. A lot more youth, uh, I guess, feeling a bit more disenfranchised, a bit disconnected with faith. How would you, I guess, make that connect again? Yeah, it's a great question because there's certainly um, the biggest problem is young people not seeing um, places of worship as a place you go to when you have a problem. Mm. Right. And I think that's because they feel judged or they feel excluded or they don't feel understood. But the fact that we have community institutions that are around most young people in the West, most of them are in walking distance of a church or a mosque or a synagogue, mm. that, you know, and, and we see young men struggling. I mean, they should be the first places that we go to and yeah. that they're not. So, so rebuilding that connection is important. One of the ways I think uh, we do that is creating opportunities for young people to lead more. I mean, I think millennials and and have been a generation that we've seen are very hungry for leadership opportunity they want to lead things start things they want to be entrepreneurs they want to be creative mm. and yet when you look at religious institutions they're seen as places where 
you have to be of a certain age, a certain level of experience in, in order to sort of have the wisdom to lead. And I think that's creating a real generation gap that we need to overcome. Hmm. And so just to finish off, um, the anecdote that you start the book with is that, and what prompted the name of the book is that you were being interviewed and the interviewer asked you, why young men? And so I wanted to put you in that position again yeah. and ask you, see if you can encapsulate in a nutshell why young men are being turned to violence. Well, the answer I gave at the beginning of the research process was a one focus on economics. So I was talking about, you know, young men not having enough opportunity, mm. they're frustrated by that. And I think that's still an important element of it. But the most important thing that I emphasize in the book, which I think is the crux of my answer now, is about relationships. It's about understanding well, who are the people around this young man? Who are his role models? Who is he looking for admiration and respect from? Who does he model himself after? Who is he inspired by? And how do we, as best we can, build a society where we're providing the most positive and helpful examples around that young man? And that is true whether you're you know, a Muslim or a Christian, you're white or you're black, or you're poor or you're rich. All of us are dealing with that problem. Mm. And that's the thing that I hope I explored effectively in the book that I didn't fully know how to articulate when I was first asked that question a few years ago. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us today, Jamil. Thank you. Thank you.